Welcome to Madam's Hoes and Gigolos, a podcast about the history of sex work and the historical events surrounding the sexual revolution. I am your host, Heather, and with me is my friend, Connor. Together, we've created a bi-weekly podcast discussing all topics in regards to history and sex. We've hit the one-year anniversary of COVID-19, something that was supposed to take just a couple weeks to, uh, quote, flatten the curve, um, but now it brings us here just one year later. To gather this information from, for this topic, we've used the power of Google. This is not sponsored by Google, but it seems to still be the most effective search engine. Oh my God, if you have seen the search history on my computer when I'm looking at topics, oh. What, what kind of stuff are you finding? Well, I've learned a few interesting facts about the two girl one cup video that went viral years ago. That wasn't your first time watching it though, was it? I still haven't seen it. No. I've seen snippets, but. Really? I enjoy my Wendy's Frosties, so I'm not going to let that ruin my my okay. time as I sit in my car sometimes eating my Wendy's Frosties. I feel like I'd seen it several times, and at the time, whenever we had a friend who was like, what? You've never seen it? We pull it up and we all like watch it together. Oh my God, are you going to make me watch this for the sake of the podcast? I don't know if you want to, because I don't want to ruin Frosties for you either. But uh, Frosties are amazing. It's actually, that was just a, an excerpt from a longer film. Well, from what I was reading, it was a minute clip that was a promotion on another video. Okay. So, yeah, I I feel like I know too much about that, but thought, hey, whatever happened to the girls from a video I've never seen? Whatever happened to those girls, though? Because I remember the sensation it was making. Yeah. So I kind of did a deep dive on that one because I thought maybe somebody who listens to the podcast might be interested. And if they are, they can let me know and... I'll research it further and then we can have the magical experience of me watching it for the first time and never eating Frosties again. Oh, uh, you know, there, there were a couple of other videos around that time that I remember watching a bunch of times. There was a uh, cake farts that I thought was kind of fun. Cake uh, farts? Yeah. Are you going to ruin cupcakes for me too? No, no, this is a big sheet cake. And what are some other ones? Yeah, yeah, probably best not to mention some of these weird ones. The chubby girl in me is so offended right now that people would do this to cake. Mm, okay. Okay. I also even looked up John Dillardman. Do you know who that is? I have no idea. That is the cartoon in Denmark about the man who has a large penis that gets them in a lot of trouble. What? Yeah. It's a, it's a cartoon that was just released in Denmark, and it's about a man who has an exceptionally large penis that gets tangled on a bunch of things. And ironically... Every time I see photos of John Dillardman, it reminds me of my friend Prox. Prox? We call him Prox. I'll call him Prox for the sake of the sake of the podcast because mm. to keep his like identity secret because he's our special treasure. But he looks similar to John Dillardman, and um, I can't I cannot confirm if he's gotten into the same trouble as he has. But yeah, it, it's kind of funny watching a cartoon snippet and having flashbacks of your friend's boyfriend. Wow. Okay. I mean, yeah. I think I would think that a big weighing would be nothing more than a minor inconvenience. But <laughs> no, that's just from what an I've assumption. seen, it's somehow it's got tangled around trees. It's got stuck in balloons, and he's flown away like up. I mean, considering small penises were celebrated by the Greeks and the Romans, you know, now we have large penises and cartoons for children. Yeah. Well, it's uh. uh <laughs> For once, for once, I have Connor speechless. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking that uh, it sounds like this guy gets into a lot of trouble. But uh, <laughs> One day we're going to have to watch it. We're going to, I guess we're going to add Two Girls, One Cup, Cake Farts. We're going to watch John Dillardman. This is how committed I am to this podcast, guys. <laughs> COVID is a wild time. Yeah, well, this guy gets into a, a lot of trouble, and uh, yeah, more power to him. It's uh, <laughs> it, we'll see if it's uh, if it's worth it for him in the end. We're talking about John Dillardman, not my friend Prox, right? Yeah, well, for your friend, it sounds like you're not revealing his identity because you don't want him to be mobbed by uh, by the ladies. Well, I I think I like to keep some things sacred. Fair enough. <laughs> well, it's been a year since we were thrust into lockdown. To prevent the spread of COVID-19. And at the beginning, they told us it was just going to be for two weeks or three months. And it just kept you know, going on and on and on. And what it's turned into is kind of similar to the Spanish flu outbreak of 1918. Now, ironically, we talk about the Spanish flu as if it originated in Spain. And we know now that uh, it did not. Um, People from other countries, scientists in uh, Great Britain and France and Germany, all seem to think that the Spanish flu actually originated right here in the United States. In Kansas, to be exact. Yeah. So some people believe the infected soldiers from Kansas spread the disease to other military camps, then overseas. In March, 84,000 American soldiers headed across the Atlantic into the war, followed by another 118,000 more the next month. In an attempt to maintain morale during the World War I, newspapers were free to report on the epidemic's effects in neutral Spain, giving it the false impression that Spain was hit hard. Yeah, well, and it seems like it hit us pretty hard in the United States. And, and you know that, that uh, the Spanish flu was actually H1N1. It was very similar to the swine flu that we had in uh, 2009. Oh, very interesting. Yeah, well, about 500 million people uh, which is a third of the world's population, uh, was infected with that Spanish flu. Deaths worldwide were estimated to be about 50 million, and it was 675,000 here in the United States. So it's still a little bit more than what we've had for COVID-19, but remember that the population 100 years ago was much, much less. So it was a bigger percentage of the population that had died. It was actually, uh, I believe that for the Spanish flu, it was about half of 1% of the country that died. And uh, right now with COVID, I think we're at about 0.15%. So as a percentage, it's, it's less, but we're probably going to end up in higher numbers. Uh, even medical intervention back then was a lot different than it is now. During these COVID times, relationships fizzled, or even the way we date changed. People upgraded their relationship status to quarantine buddy. A quarantine buddy is a specific person that either lives or moves in and allowed to penetrate your bubble. Pun intended. Uh-huh. People finding connections on dating apps and having dates via Zoom, FaceTime, or other social networks. Even on Tinder, the dating app, the words vaccine or vaccinated has increased in three months, 258%. Yeah, I, I'd imagine that it's kind of like when people write on their Tinder profile, ST checked and I'm, you know, I'm safe. I got my... Do people do that? I think so. I've never seen it, but I heard that people do that. Oh, I've never seen it either. 
But considering I'm vaccinated, I might be tempted to put vaccinated it's, and start a Tinder profile that's and a selling and, point. But and <laughs> test w- this theory out. W- w- would you be more attracted to guys that say uh, vaccinated? No, I don't think it would change in my mind. But I feel like what would change the idea of if a person was very anti-mask or it's a hoax that would change my mind versus vaccinated more i want to lean more towards the believers than the deniers so if they were to say this is a hoax i'm going to swipe left but if they're open to wearing a mask and protection and in all forms all forms of protection people go right yeah you know i i guess the difference though is that if somebody says that they don't have STDs and you don't, and you, you know you get together, you're fine. If somebody is a little bit more uh, promiscuous and uh, careless with that stuff, they can get something and transmit it to you. Versus with COVID, if you're vaccinated and you get with somebody who isn't vaccinated, you still have some kind of protection. I have some kind of protection, but I could still be contagious to other people who are not vaccinated. So I might not get symptoms but I could still pass it on to somebody else, even though I'm vaccinated. It's just protecting me from the symptoms, not from passing the virus. So I still have to be cautious. Yeah, it's it's a weird disease, but yeah. So anyways, back to dating apps. OkCupid okay, has tailored its profile questionnaire to cater to the pandemic. The questions about what one might consider ideal lockdown date. Bumble has filters. Right now, people want relationships and they want way to connect with others. Connor, what would be your quarantine ideal date? Oh, boy. I don't know. I guess it depends what stage of the pandemic we were in. Like early on, if you're not like going out and meeting people in person, you know, I guess you just get to know each other through Zoom. There was uh, one guy on TikTok that I saw, because you're no longer limited, if you're going to be doing virtual dating to people in your geographic proximity, he had a goal to go on 50 dates with girls in 50 states. And it was a really cool, you know, he like showed like all these girls and like clips from his date with a girl in Oklahoma and Arkansas and South Carolina and Maine. And um, I thought that was kind of neat. That is actually kind of neat. I saw a, a, a Zoom date with um, Common and Tiffany Haddish and he had dinner delivered to her and roses and then they had a Zoom date. And I thought that was really nice and that was really romantic. And I was just like, gosh, Common, you are so perfect. <laughs> what other what things could you do then without being a virtual date? Like, could you actually meet up with someone? Like, you don't want to be, I guess it's it's a lot less scary now. You know, as long as you stay kind of distant, you're not kissing yet, you're, um, you're not in each other's faces, you're wearing masks. But uh you can't even really do restaurant dining. You can't do outdoor dining. You can now, but for a while. Outdoors. You right. So there's still limitations on what you can do on a date. But uh, the the Zoom thing, I'd say, is pr- probably the most comfortable. I, I would think so. But I mean, I don't even feel natural when I'm on a computer talking to somebody. I feel like I'm shouting. I, 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 I don't know. I have I've yet to do a Zoom date, so I don't know. You need a better microphone. <laughs> I do. Maybe since you're the tech guy on this podcast, you can send me the right way to find a good microphone and yeah. maybe I can have a better dating life in it's these all, COVID times. It's all about the microphone and the lighting and you'll be you'll be set. <laughs> well, I think I have the, the lighting. I have a I have a ring light. <laughs> okay. Cool. So online dating luxuries weren't available in the twentieth century. The pandemic started while we were in our first world war and stayed until after, hitting us in four waves. 
more American soldiers died from the flu than were killed in battle. Yeah, that's nuts. Now, disasters, uh, by definition, are devastating, but they usually can lead to some changes that offer some kind of a small silver lining. Now, while this virus did disproportionately affect younger men, and with the combination of World War I, uh, it actually had the silver lining of granting women a whole new role in the workforce. And they ratified the 19th Amendment, granting women suffrage in the United States, which means that they were given the right to vote. So how was dating and sex different in the conservative Victorian era versus today in the progressive modern times? Meaning, how did the Spanish flu change our outlook on dating and on sex? Well, when we combated the Spanish flu the same way, in theory, that we combated COVID, they didn't have vaccines available just as we did uh, until just recently, and they didn't have hydroxychloroquine uh, to treat it, if that's what you prefer. Uh, so they did things like social distancing, they wore masks, they closed down schools and restaurants and festivals and businesses, and public gatherings were banned in most places, and they had uh, restrictions on uh, public transportation. Uh, I want to bring up an article that I read a long time ago, and it's called A Tale of Two Cities, and it actually talks about the difference in how Philadelphia and uh, St. Louis treated the Spanish flu differently. Have you heard about this? No, I haven't. So they were used as a comparison because they were both pretty major cities, but St. Louis was one of the top 10 largest cities uh, in the United States, and they took all kinds of action within a day of the first case arriving in their city, right? They, uh, they closed down their restaurants, they uh, closed down businesses and schools, and for 10 weeks, which sounds like not a long time for us, but at the time, that was a pretty big deal. They stationed police officers in department stores to keep people from lingering in there. So you do your shopping and you get out of there. Businesses complained, and the commissioner at the time was a long-term uh, well-trusted health expert, and he had the courage to champion bold actions and said, no, no, this is what we have to do, and they largely survived. On the other hand, we have a city like Philadelphia, and they did not take quick action. They had an event uh, in September of 1918 where they had 200,000 people attend a parade for the war effort. That, that's a lot of people. And 10 days earlier, there was a big uh, influenza outbreak on the naval shipyard, and the city's leadership just allowed that parade to go on. And so what happened was within two weeks of that parade, 600 people in Philadelphia died from the virus, and it got really, really bad. And at some point, uh, they had 1,700 people in that city die in a single day. So that was kind of a huge mess up on their part. With uh, Over the course of the entire pandemic, if you factor for population size, St. Louis had about 358 deaths per 100,000 people while Philadelphia had 748 deaths. So they had over twice as many deaths overall. A lot of them were front-loaded because of that, but that's a lot of people. Once again, blowing my mind with what you contribute, I had no idea. But of course, people didn't comply with mandates back then, just like now. Arizona would pass $10 fines to whoever wasn't wearing protective gear. 
And in San Francisco, a health officer shot three people who refused to wear the mandatory face masks. I know they did do a lot of mass shaming, calling people mass slackers back during the pandemic. Various religions responded to the pandemic with prayers to appease the higher power. Meanwhile, Eastern European Jewish immigrants took this plague as an opportunity to revive an old superstition, a black wedding. What is that? It was an obscure tradition practiced widely during the Chlora epidemic in Poland during 1892. The main idea of the superstition was that a gravesite wedding would appeal to the dead who would intervene on the living's behalf and that God would have pity on the couple, thus halting the spread of the disease. So they would actually have their wedding, not as a like just uh, a sign or a statement, but like they got married there trying to think that that would somehow protect them? Two strangers in love. Harry Rosenbuck and Fanny Jacobs, two strangers in Philadelphia that only had two things in common. One, they were poor. Two, they had the desire to save their community. Okay, so they weren't like getting married and they planned to have their wedding in a cemetery. They did this for the sake of protecting their community. Yep, two strangers in love in Philadelphia. So back in Philadelphia, which we know did not have a very positive track record of treating this Spanish flu seriously, on October 20th of 1918, these two strangers were wed in the cemetery with a huge audience of 1,200 people. Harry and Fanny made a major sacrifice uh, by getting married to try to use their marriage towards the greater good, uh, but it seems like they may have made the ultimate sacrifice. Uh, research brought up very little about them other than their marriage, um, but it's likely that they both died due to the Spanish flu themselves. I even went on Ancestry.com to even try and verify this, and it's just we there's records of the marriage, and then it's done. You don't hear anything else from these two. So I tried to follow this and go down this rabbit hole, but it just was a dead end. I wonder how they got together, and how did people in general during the Spanish flu like meet each other? During the Spanish flu, people felt just as cock-blocked as Americans do now. Since there was no element of casually running into the love of your life, people took to newspapers to find new love interests. Singles would often submit profiles and take out marital ads in classified sections of newspapers. Just like how we would swipe left or right on Tinder, people during the Spanish flu would flip through pages looking for a suitable match. I guess that makes sense because the most common way to find friends or a romantic partner would be at the workplace or at school. If you don't go to school and you don't go to work, you know, you're, you're going out and hanging out at uh, bars or places like that, movies, and all that stuff shut down. So we're, we're very much limited to these apps, similarly to how they had uh, their newspapers. The newspapers, right. People couldn't rely on their dating apps to seal the deal for them, which is why this was the time period that love letters truly became popular. There was no instant messaging, so people had no choice but to craft a letter and wait patiently for the response in the mail. Which could probably take weeks in between uh, letters. Right. So, unfortunately, uh, kissing is one of the most surefire ways to spread the infection now as it was then. And cities all over had kissing bans, so you actually weren't able to be kissing out in public. As World War I ended, people were forbidden to hug or kiss the soldiers. Imagine that as they came home. 
you, you greet them, maybe give them a fist bump. Right. Elbows, tap elbows. Yeah. And it's so strange, but you know, those, those guys were just on a ship or on a plane with tons of other guys. Right. They don't know where you've been. You don't know where they've been. So the safest thing to do is to not be publicly affectionate like that. And as awareness of germ theory grew, people began to understand that the disease could be spread through contact, such as kissing. So what did these Starcoffed lovers do to keep their spark alive amidst all these rules? Well, Dr. Royal S. Copeland, who was the commissioner of health, officially advised against kissing, except, and I'm going to use air quotes here, through a handkerchief. So if you hold up a handkerchief in front of your faces, you can kiss through that. Eh. Or mask-to-mask kissing. A headline in the New York City Sun actually said, if you must kiss, kiss via kerchief. A product called an oscillatory screen was approved by the National Pharmaceutical Society 10 years before the pandemic. The screen was designed to render the kiss hygienic and safeguard lovers from the danger of germs. It describes the screen as a disinfected silk gauze through which the kiss is accomplished, the gauze being held in an ivory frame and placed between the pair's lips before they meet. Popular Science Monthly promised a pure and germless kiss. But with gauze, there's tiny little holes in it, so I don't think that's possible. Yeah, this whole thing is so strange to have to... Usually a kiss is kind of spontaneous. Right. Hold on. Let me pull up this tool. Yeah. The screen would form a barrier between the lovebird's lips. But as it appears to be made of mesh, it won't have done much to stop the virus from spreading. Of course, we know now that the screen would be useless. Germs are spread not only through the mouth, but through the nose, too. Yeah, it seems like even today, a lot of people don't realize this. Uh, it's still common to go into a store or a gas station and see people wearing uh, the mask around their, like, as a, a chin strap or maybe just over their mouth and not over their nose. So just a friendly reminder to everyone, it goes over your nose. Oh, my God, I see that all the time. When I go to the gas station to get cu- a cup of coffee, it's always under their nose and it it just gives me some anxiety and i don't know why but i get anxious and i get annoyed and right well because we've been putting a lot of effort into trying to curb this pandemic for a year now and some people are still contributing to the problem so i understand that anxiety thank you because i really get mad good The electromechanical vibrator actually originated in the late 19th century as a device for, quote, medical therapy. During this time, we had a guy named Anthony Comstock, who we're going to dedicate almost an entire episode to uh, in the future. He was dedicated to upholding Victorian morality. His extensive campaign to censor materials that he considered to be obscene, namely anything that remotely discussed sex, publicly targeted pornography, uh, contraceptive equipment, and uh, educational materials that described any contraceptive methods or other reproductive health-related materials. So just to clarify, Anthony Comstock considered obscene, so this, he did, nobody else, but he made this rule. He he had these Comstock laws, yeah, and he declared something to be obscene, and it was like just signed into law. It was at his sole discretion, pretty much. Just one guy? One. Just, Just him. Just him. Interesting. Can't wait to tackle that one. Comstock died in 1915, right before the Spanish flu. 
However, his laws were enforced until 1965 when it was repealed. That's an extra 50 years after his death that these ridiculous censorship laws were still in place. And not even all of them have been repealed. Really? Right. We still have some that are still active. We'll go ahead and discuss that on another podcast, but they're there. With anti-obscenity laws and anti-masturbation rhetoric and believing that women only got pleasure from sexual intercourse, now we have state guidelines encouraging masturbation, phone sex, and sex toys. But vibrator ads appeared in mainstream magazines and all major newspapers, displayed in electrical windows, and featured in Sears catalogs. A 1918 Sears catalog advertised the device as a very satisfactory marital aid that every woman appreciates. Hearst Magazine marketed the vibrator towards men as a Christmas gift to ensure that their young women look pretty. Other advertisements portrayed the vibrator as cure-all for dozens of diseases, including deafness, malaria, fatigue, and impotence. For social, legal, and political reasons, however, advertisers could not explicitly advocate for sexual use of these products. Vibrators' non-sexual uses allow companies to manufacture and advertise them, electric companies to promote them, and consumers to purchase them without embarrassment or legal restrictions. It seems so strange to me that they would legally be allowed to say this vibrator can treat deafness and malaria and all these other disorders, but not just say you can use it for sexual pleasure. Thank you, Anthony Comstock. Yeah. So by 1921, there were more than 60 different vibrator patents issued in the United States, and there were 31 vibrator manufacturers by 1921. One manufacturer, called Star, reportedly sold 800,000 vibrators in 1921 alone. The price of a vibrator was a little under $10, making them accessible to a wider range of middle-class families. By comparison, uh, $10 in 1921 is the equivalent of $130 today. Oh, wow. I mean, I'll be honest, I've seen vibrators cost that much now. The Hitachi magic wand? <laughs> the waterproof, non-plug-in kind. Uh-huh. Battery-operated USB with sucking With sucking feature. Uh-huh. Just saying. Okay. It, well, it might even heat up itself. Okay. Well, you know all the bells and whistles. Maybe. Research my Google history. Uh-huh. Yeah, okay. So they were as inexpensive as that, which uh, I guess appealed to a wider range of middle-class families, but it's still kind of uh, expensive for the time, I think. Flash forward to modern days, and novelty adult products are gaining mainstream position in the sexual wellness industry. In 2020, the global sex toys market was valued at $33.64 billion. E-commerce platforms and online retailers held the largest market share of more than 60% in 2020. Adam and Eve, which is a major online retailer, reported a 30% increase in online sales in March and April when the lockdown began. That's pretty significant. Wow Tech Group, which owns the WeVibe and the Womanizer, reported that online sales for both brands were up over 200% this April compared to last year. Online stores and retailers have reported significantly high demand for adult toys with a worldwide lockdown to combat the COVID-19 pandemic. Pink Cherry Womanizer Vibrator marketed their stay-at-home campaign with ads that read, Scream Your Own Name. (laughs) 
That's a great marketing campaign. <laughs> that is. Marketing strategies used for these products are changing. Manufacturers are working on removing pornographic images associated with sexual wellness products and rebranding the, the use of a vibrator as a healthy means of improving a sex life. Even Amazon quietly got in on the action. After they announced it would delay delivery of non-essential goods in the U.S., workers claimed to still be continuing to deliver non-essential items like nipple clamps. One worker even alleged that they had to ship 392 different kinds of nipple clamps to one customer who had ordered them. One customer needed 392 different kinds of nipple clamps? 392 different... I'm, I'm one... <laughs> what if they just ordered a bunch of nipple clamps, found one that they liked, and sent... 391 back. I can't even imagine there being that many different kinds. I can name 10 kinds of nipple clamps. No, not really. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I can't even name one. <laughs> well, the alligator clips, chip clips, binder clips. Yeah, no, can't even. You know, I have a friend who is a boudoir ph photographer, and he's a great photographer. And he has sent me pictures of how he preps women, and he uses, he uses clamps, like to oh. to pinch the nipples and and stuff like that. So, I mean, I guess, but I think nipple clamps are smaller than actual like grip clamps that he uses. <laughs> I don't know. Is this the guy that photographed you? Yes. Yes. Okay. This is the guy that photographed me. <laughs> Didn't think we were going to talk about that, did you? <laughs> I mean, they're on my Instagram and he's tagged on my Instagram. He's a great photographer. Employees at an Amazon fulfillment center walked out in protest because of working conditions and the lack of transparency from their facility. Management failed to inform its staff of a positive COVID case. Dildos are not essential items. I remember watching that guy on TV. Mad. Well, they sell a lot of different items on Amazon. And at some point, you're going to have to draw the line between delivering toilet papers and soaps and hand sanitizers and uh, PlayStations or whatever, you know, like if you're stuck at home. So are health and wellness products all considered to be essential? I don't know. Well, I mean, let's think about it. They used this before 1918 for women who were, who were talking back and considered hysterical. Right. Do you, re do you remember? Yeah, I wasn't alive then, but I, I mean, remember... <laughs> Right. Hearing about Where, uh, hysteria. You know, if a woman was hysterical, they would have to go to the doctor and then the doctor would take out this device and relieve them with this massaging device and relieve them of their hysteria. You're right. Because, it was a medical device then. And before the invention of the vibrator, he would have to do this with his hands. Right. You know, when you achieve a climax, certain hormones are released and you're calm. I don't dopamine, serotonin, I'm not sure. Is is sexual wellness part of health? Yeah, I guess we're going to have d differing uh, views on that. People definitely have a need to explore themselves and relieve sexual tension, even when they're locked away at home. And so they're going to be buying products for that. They're going to be checking out different uh, websites or apps, maybe sending nude photos to each other. We do live in the digital age, Connor. We can take and send a pic. We can subscribe to OnlyFans. We can search adult content on Reddit. During the Spanish flu, people didn't have nudes at their fingertips. OnlyFans has been around since 2016, and it's widely used for sex work. It is. Uh, just last year, in May of 2020, their CEO, Tim Stokely, 
revealed that OnlyFans had been seeing about 200,000 new users every single day and 6,000 to 8,000 new creators joining every single day. So that's massive growth for uh, a relatively new company. Subscriptions from the general users have also shot up 50% last April, according to BuzzFeed. And that's because people have been using it during the pandemic to earn money from creating porn. OnlyFans was founded by Timothy Stokely, and it's a website only. So that means that there's no official apps for using it. They currently have about 50 million worldwide users and 450,000 creators. OnlyFans actually changed the sex work industry forever, dubbing OnlyFans the, quote, paywall for porn. But OnlyFans is used by all sorts of creators. Models, musicians, actors, physical fitness experts, and influencers all use OnlyFans to generate revenue. People like Black China, Tyler Posey, and now even Michael B. Jordan is hinting at the idea of joining. Mm, I kind of like that one. Cardi B became the highest profile celebrity on OnlyFans recently. However, when I looked at her profile, she only had six photos up since August. So is OnlyFans created to be uh, for sex workers or was it just for all celebrities like a cameo or uh, Patreon to say, hey, here I am. If you want to subscribe to me, you can pay me five bucks or 10 bucks every single month for exclusive content. It's not exclusive to just sex work. Other celebrities can get on and I have seen that other celebrities are on and it's a way to interact with them where you can pay money to have a chat with them or you can get other content from them. Like I've seen uh, Dorinda from Real Housewives of New York she's on there and so is Sonia Morgan and they do things like cooking or, or whatever and it's just a way to interact one-on-one -on -one with this celebrity by paying them to talk to you sure Bella Thorne briefly crashed the site after she joined in August she earned a total of two million after two weeks on OnlyFans she caused some controversy by scamming her fan page with an alleged bait and switch which angered subscribers and had them demanding refunds or filing for chargebacks. This caused OnlyFans to change its policy on its service. I remember that that was huge news, and she pissed a lot of people off because OnlyFans wasn't made for that kind of thing. She was just sharing regular photos like she'd have on, on Instagram, but people wanted to kind of get close to her, and um, that was a big deal. Uh, what they changed was now, rather than being able to tip somebody $5,000 for an exclusive photo, tips are capped at $100. And one-time viewing fees for a post can't exceed more than $50. So creators are worried now that they'll have to wait 30 days instead of what used to be seven to cash out all the money that they've earned. Thorne later apologized for hurting sex workers in a series of tweets. You know, I saw just a couple of weeks ago, there was a uh, famous uh, social media influencer who had an OnlyFans. And there was a picture or was it a video of her for when she was a kid she was running around in the sprinklers or something like that and her mom said something like you know hey can you keep your underwear on or something like that and she put like some kind of a clickbaity title like no i won't keep my underwear on and she sold this childhood video of herself and a lot of people think that she was like sexualizing her childhood video and it was inappropriate and she, while she made a lot of money she had, had to go and apologize for that I mean, I, I, I get that. I see that because I get a little weirded out when people post pictures of their kids in bathtubs on social media. So, talking about pornography, uh, the first staged naked portrait was taken in 1840 
Photos of more or less naked natives illustrated the pages of the prestigious journals of National Geographic and other textbooks. So, of course, the first thing people are going to do when they develop a camera is going to be pornography, right? Yes. Uh, Funny enough, when I was talking to some of my film students recently, I have some old flipbooks here of some of the first recorded films, and one of them right there is a naked woman jump roping, and that film is over 100 years old, but it just shows, you know, that early uh, audiences were captivated by uh, watching boobs bounce. You never cease to amaze me of the amazing things you pull out of whatever you have in your office or even what in your head. It never ceases to amaze me. (laughs) Oh, thanks. (laughs) Yeah, you want to see a guy leapfrogging over another guy? Yeah. Let's. Oh, and he's standing. I just happen to have these here. To be one of your students. Yeah, well, it's it's weird pointing that out to like high school students, but yeah, for the college <laughs> students, I think I can show those too. Right. The first decades of the 20th century saw radical changes in societal attitudes. Medical breakthroughs, World War I, the evolution of fashion and dance, and the expansion of illustrated magazines and advertising. In a prudish society... Photographers have to think a little bit differently about their approach to the human body. So at first they'll decide to capture the body in segments and take close-ups. So like when you say in segments and in close-ups, so it's like breast pics or, you know, genital pics, just break it up instead of one full pic versus just... No no full body pictures, yeah. Right, Here's, here's here's my boobs. Yeah, kind of no no context. Okay. All right. I mean, I think I I could dig a good boob shot. <laughs> I mean, one type of postcard rarely discussed when studying the First World War is the risque image showing a woman in a state of undress or fully nude. Erotic pictures from Jean and Julou, who was best known for his erotic and nude photographs made at the beginning of the 20th century were cherished by soldiers on both sides of the First World War. Erotic postcards and magazines had to be sold or shipped in sealed envelopes. Yeah, even today, if you were to order like a Playboy or Hustler, if they're still doing print magazines, you would get them in like a uh, like a black plastic that's very opaque. And I just thought that was for your own privacy so that your roommates, your neighbors don't see you getting nudie magazines. But it could be for uh, legality, you know, because otherwise you're exposing the mailman or somebody else to something that maybe they didn't want to see? Well, number one, Playboys went digital in 2020. And number two, I just was for research purposes, ordered a Playboy and it came in a sealed plastic wrap in another envelope. It was an older magazine then, right? It is. If they're not making them? Okay. Yeah, it was an older magazine, but I wanted to do some research. And so I ordered an old copy that I thought was used, but it turned out to be fresh and still sealed. That's great. Even better. Yeah. So then I ruined it and opened it okay. to do my research. The 1920s was a self-consciously naughty decade where young people tried to overturn earlier Victorian strictures that inhibited sexual expression and repressed post-World War society, and they experimented with erotic exploration. Often referred to as petting parties or snuggle pupping or necking, as you might have heard your grandparents say. Uh, It was a ritual spread. F. Scott Fitzgerald, who we know from The Great Gatsby, uh, mentioned this phenomenon in his first book. It's called The Side of Paradise. 
These petting parties were not orgies. They encouraged experimentation, but created clear limits with the same partner. Young men and women would explore each other by touching and kissing and physical contact. However, things stopped before intercourse. These parties allowed people to explore their sexuality without losing their virginity, getting pregnant, or getting an STD. Makeout sessions eventually spilled out into public spaces and onto lovers' lanes as automobiles became more commonplace. Once the new customs regarding sexual experimentation became common and normal, though still peer-enforced and regulated, this kind of public display was no longer necessary. The 20s also gave women newfound freedom. Women were beginning to earn their own money, having fewer children, and the right to vote by August. Margaret Stanger was making strides in providing birth control to women. This created the generation of the flapper, women who felt no compulsion to marry. They drank, smoked, wore skirts with hemlines above the knee, low necklines. They tossed away their corsets for bras and lingerie, wore their hair short, and dated multiple men before marriage. You know, I didn't realize that a flapper referred to the woman who wore it. Like, I, I know that for 20s parties, we have flapper dresses, and I just thought that that was the name of the dress that had, like, these flappy fringe, you know? No, it was, it was the woman challenging society. Yeah, she was a flapper. Okay. Critics grumbled about flappers' refusals to engage in traditional courtships and their flippant attitudes towards long-held social conventions. They focused on the supposed immorality of these young women. Right. So what they did is they changed a whole bunch of laws in an attempt to kind of curb this new flapper lifestyle. For example, Utah attempted to pass legislation on the length of a woman's skirt. Virginia tried to ban any dress that revealed too much of a woman's throat. Ohio tried to ban form-fitting outfits. Women who populated beaches in bathing suits that were deemed inappropriate were escorted off the beach by a policeman or arrested if they refused. Popular Washington, D.C. hostess, Mrs. John B. Henderson, attempted to start a mass movement against what she considered vulgar fashions. After the Wall Street crash of 1929, the flapper lifestyle and the look disappeared. A sudden serious tone washed over the public with the appearance of the Great Depression. The high-spirited attitude was less acceptable during the economic hardships of the 1930s. Numerous states took action, making laws that restricted women to wear skirts with hemlines no shorter than three inches above the ankle. The ever-popular bobbed haircut was the cause for some women being fired from their jobs. Yeah, there's a lot of cultural changes and uh, economic changes and population changes. Was there a baby boom after the Spanish flu outbreak? Well, the U.S. entered World War I in 1917. The following year, Spanish flu hit. There was a decline in births by 12.5%. Miscarriages in 1918 may be the one reason for the fertility fluctuation during 1919 to 1920. Deaths of pregnant women arguably led to fewer births in 1919. The Spanish flu hit pregnant women with the consequent effects of increased stillbirths and possibly more prematurity. The possible death of young men in World War I is also a factor. Widows who lost their husband were required to be in mourning for one year. There was no time period for men who lost a wife. What a crazy restriction. Say you must mourn for a year. You must mourn for a year your husband. But if you're, you die, your husband can marry somebody the next day if they wanted to. Seems like a double standard, doesn't it? It does seem like it, but that was Victorian morale. Yeah. 
Well, the countries that remained neutral in that first world war did have a baby boom after the war. Okay, so there was a decline of births after the war and then after a Spanish flu. If history was to repeat itself, Connor, do you think that there would still be a decline in births now? I don't know. I, I kind of feel like we could see an increase in births following this crazy uh, economic year and we've just been so distant that we all want to get back to normal. I think that we're going to start going to movie theaters and bars and concerts and traveling and just overall being happier. God, you make that sound so nice. Yeah, just going back to school, back to work, being around people again, connecting, being more intimate. It wouldn't be immediate. Now, remember the actual, like what's known as the baby boom was from 1946 to 64. So it was after the Second World War and it was almost a 20 year time period. And so we might have something like that. We also had, like, let's think of the history's sake. We had World War One. We had the Spanish flu. Then we had that little gap of flapper time where women were exploring their sexuality and contraceptions were available. Then we had the Great Depression hit us. And then World War II. So. Right. We had, we had the Roaring Twenties. We were busy doing other things and not thinking about having babies. And then as soon as World War II hit and everybody came back, then there was... Yeah, that's, that's a good point. I mean, you would think that the flapper generation that was kind of like party attitude, that that would have caused a, an increase in births, but it didn't. Contraceptions were becoming available. Yeah, in the 20s. And they were challenging society. Yeah. Well, still, I, I think that people generally being happier and getting back to normal could lead to an increase in births. But that's just my opinion. Obviously, there's some people that disagree with me. For example, Brookings, which is a social science research nonprofit organization, they predict that there's going to be a nationwide decline of 300,000 to 500,000 births as a result of COVID-19. And that's because of job losses, anxiety, public health, and contraception is easily available today. So you can get together and have sexual relations without that leading to babies. I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens to our population over the next year or five years or 20 years, uh, hoping that we can get back together to normal this year. It is going to be interesting to see. And it's going to be interesting to see how dating has changed and how people react to things differently. And I, I'm, I'm excited to see. Do you think we'll ever get back to what we think is normal? I forgot what normal is. Yeah, I think that we'll get back to something that's kind of fun and reminiscent of our previous routines, but it's never going to be back to fully normal. And I think that that's okay. Right. Yeah, definitely. Like, I'm a person that likes my space. I like my space around me. And so I can appreciate that there's supposed to be this distance around me so people aren't in my space. Like, if I was to go to the gym, I I have a space. Mm-hmm. You know, there there is a regulated space where people need to stay. And I like that. But then I'm also reactive when people are too close to each other. Yeah. Oh, that's always weird for me, too. Watching TV and movies and seeing people uh, in crowds. And you're like, oh, that is so unsafe. Right. I, I tell myself that they've tested or something because I know I've gone to events and like I have I have a, a event to go to next week. But we've all agreed we test before, we wear our masks, we are at least being proactive into that first than anything. 
Yeah. So it'll be it'll be interesting to see how we grow from this. Will we have another flapper movement? Yeah. Well, how can you get more free than we are today? I don't know. Well, I think we're learning, learning how, how we are not still equal in the men's world. We are better, but we're still not seen equally. Right. But the flapper movement didn't necessarily put women on a level playing field in that regard. Like it kind of gave women their own freedom to explore and party and do all those things. But I think women took their freedom and good for them. Good for them. You're not going to regulate my body. Let me wear my short skirts. and Yeah, that's nuts. Right. To have legislation on that. So with every episode, we suggest a charity. This month's episode is projecthope.org. Their strategy focuses on providing life-saving protective gear in high-risk areas, training frontline healthcare workers to treat COVID-19, deploying medical volunteers to provide surge staffing, and helping health systems around the world ensure continuity of health services. Link will be in the show notes. All right. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like the show, please help us out by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes and share us with your friends. You can follow us on Instagram at madamshosandjigalos. And if you have an idea or a topic suggestion you'd like to hear, feel free to give us a DM. Yeah, we're usually pretty responsive to DMs through the IG. So thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll see you on the next one. <laughs>